I'll be reading from Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 to 22. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as firstfruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old, without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering, and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the firstfruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest, and you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to open them now. And you can open them to page 909. We're going to be looking at the passage that Elder Robert mentioned just a moment ago. This account from the book of Acts written by the Apostle Luke. Uh, It's the account of Pentecost. And so... We've already been singing about it. We've been meditating on the Holy Spirit and his work, his person, his ministry. Uh, Now let's read God's take on this person, this third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read the first 13 verses. Hear now God's holy word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, And they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, 
What does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this amazing story. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that you've recorded this faithfully in your scriptures for us to know that what you have promised, you have delivered on. The comforter has come. And so the church need not faint or fear. We're here today by your grace, and we sit under your word, and we ask that the Spirit would teach us about himself, about you, about Jesus Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be glorified in this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. During an ecumenical assembly, the receptionist rushed in shouting, the building is on fire. The Methodists started praying in a corner. The Baptists began looking around for water. The Quakers quietly praised God for the blessings that fire brings. The Lutherans posted a notice on the door announcing that the fire was evil. The Roman Catholics, they passed the plate to cover the cost of the damage. The Congregationalists shouted, every man for himself. The Fundamentalists proclaimed, it's the vengeance of God. The Episcopalians formed a procession and protested. And the Presbyterians appointed a chairperson and formed a committee to look into the matter and submit a written report. The receptionist grabbed the fire extinguisher and put the fire out. You may have heard this joke before. Uh, I first came across it when I was in seminary. <clears throat> and uh, you know, it's an equal opportunity offender. And that's what I appreciate about it. Uh, you, you know, it, it's jokes like this that remind us, you know, as Christians, it's okay to not take ourselves so seriously all the time. And um, it's one that I think uh, can remind us of true ecumenism. However, I think there's something else we can glean from this story, this joke. And it's that no matter what our tribe or our background, indeed, even our denomination, when we find ourselves face to face with power beyond our control, in this case, fire, we all have our own ways of trying to make sense of what we can't control or explain. And you know, that's what we see in the passage we just read together. Luke describes this extraordinary event that took place 10 days after Jesus' resurrection, his ascension to heaven, excuse me, where God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, he shows up with the sound of a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire, and he fills the disciples so that they begin praising God in a multitude of languages and dialects. You could say that, in a sense, the building was on fire, a blaze that all the fire extinguishers in the world could never put out. And Luke tells us in verses 12 and 13 that while some accused the disciples of drunkenness, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And friends, that's the question on the floor for us today as well. What does this mean? In the face of such transcendent power, 
what does the Spirit's coming at Pentecost mean for us today? And so there are three things that I want to draw out from the text that I hope will answer this question for us. A powerful presence, a new people, and a better word. So let's look at these in turn. A powerful presence. We see that in verses 1 to 4. Luke starts off by telling us all of this had happened, quote, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now another translation would be when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. In other words, what was about to happen to the disciples and those around them was actually a fulfillment of the Jewish feast of Pentecost. Now, what exactly was Pentecost? Uh, Elder Robert read where it's found in the Old Testament for us earlier, and he gave a, a nice, succinct explanation for how to understand it. But it's in Leviticus 23 that we see Pentecost was a ceremony. Robert mentioned that it was also known as the Feast of Weeks, or Feast of First Fruits. And God commanded the Israelites to celebrate this 50 days after Passover, hence Pentecost, and to celebrate it as a dedication of the first fruits of their harvest to him in worship. It was an annual reminder that the mere fact of having land to cultivate at all was a result of God's saving grace. They only were able to to harvest crops because God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And so God instituted this feast as a reminder to them on a regular basis. And we see some loose parallels of this in other cultures as well, such as certain Eastern cultures where, for instance, in Korean tradition, there's what's called the offering of sogot or nebo. And what that is is basically when a son or a daughter gets their first paycheck. And instead of going out and blowing it and spending it on themselves, what they do is they offer it to their parents. And what that's meant to signify is that they recognize and they honor the fact that it's their parents' nurturing and care and sacrifice that even made possible their ability to come to this day where they can earn a living for themselves. And so Pentecost was more than anything a celebration of salvation. But then, how is the Spirit's coming a fulfillment of that? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us a clue in Romans chapter 8. You don't have to turn there, but maybe uh, look at that later on your own time. But if you've read it before, it's the passage where Paul talks about what it means to have hope in the midst of suffering. And do you remember what he says there? He says, the hope we have in the midst of our suffering is the promise that one day your suffering will come to an end. That all of the futility, all of the corruption, all of the decay that plagues this creation, it'll give way to a new age of freedom and glory when Christ returns. And how can we be sure of this? Well, he tells us in verse 23, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, what the Feast of Weeks pointed to ultimately was that day in Acts 2, when God himself would offer to us the first fruits of his harvest, the Holy Spirit, who is the heir of heaven and the age to come. What does Pentecost mean? Friends, Pentecost means that heaven itself is present with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And this is the very thing that Jesus himself had promised. Again, Robert mentioned that he himself, 
Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he promised in chapter 1, verse 8, that the Spirit would come and that when he does, the apostles, the disciples, all of us as well, would receive power. But what kind of power is he referring to? And this is an important distinction that I think we need to make. See, Luke describes the Spirit's presence in verses 2 and 3 as wind and fire. And here's the thing. All throughout the Hebrew Bible, when God manifests his presence with wind and fire, he usually does so in the context of judgment and death. Whether it's the fire of God that consumes a sacrifice or the fearsome whirlwind described by the psalmist or by Job, the violent power of these elements serve as vivid signals of God's holiness and his wrath against sin. So then how is it that the Spirit comes in Acts 2 and he rests on the disciples and they live to tell about it? It can only be that something so full of grace and wonder is happening here. You see, while it's true that God's people had experienced the Spirit in the Old Testament, he would do what he always does in regenerating and anointing people for his service. Here in Acts 2, for the first time, the disciples received that same spirit, but in his most lethal form. Yet not only are they not destroyed by the wind and the fire, better yet, they're empowered by it. One of my favorite artists is the guitar virtuoso Steve Vai. And if you're familiar with his work, uh, he, he's got this ongoing fascination with the concept of light without heat. And you can track it through his older projects on down to the present. And he seems to really be grasping through his music at what it could be like to behold a pure and radiant light that is not also purifying to the point of annihilation. And it's something that I think resonates with all of us. It's that longing that we all have to be able to come into the light, to be completely exposed for who we are, and to see everything as it is, and yet to not be rejected, to not be extinguished, to not be punished. And beloved, what Pentecost means is that God is present with us in power. He delivers on that longing. He turns the lights on in our life through his spirit, but he does so in a way that doesn't destroy or annihilate us, but it purifies and it empowers us. That power, though, is like no other power the world has ever known. You see, power, as the world defines it, means dominance, control, and self-promotion. It's the use of one's strength and privilege to serve one's own agenda, even if it disempowers or even harms others. Yet isn't that too often the kind of power we see at play, even in the church at large? Hannah King wrote an article this past week called Oh for a Thousand Tongues of Fire. And uh, it was released on the 24th of May in Christianity Today. If you have a subscription, you can go and pull that up and read it in its entirety. But here's what she says. The modern church in the West has a suspicious relationship with power. When it serves our interests or protects our privilege, we justify evil in many forms, from denying racism 
to protecting sexual predators, no denomination is blameless. No theological tribe or form of church governance is immune to corruption. Our track record of protecting the powerful makes us look like any other institution. True power is subversive because it's self-effacing and God-glorifying. The earliest believers, the believers of Acts 2, preached Christ, whether that elevated them in the public eye or landed them in prison. The same goes for the church today. God resources us for the advancement of his kingdom, not our own kingdoms. The power of the Spirit's presence, beloved, it's in us as a power to serve others instead of dominating them, to heal instead of to control, to elevate the lowly over ourselves. This is the Spirit's powerful presence among us. And it's the first thing, thing that we see in this account. But secondly, Luke shows us a new people. There's a, a powerful presence, but there's also a new people. And we see this in three ways. And I'm going I'm to kind of lay this out in three six-syllable words. Okay, so prepare yourself for a lot of syllables. The first is the democratization of the Spirit. The democratization of the Spirit. We see that in verses 3 and 4. Notice the language that Luke uses in these verses. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, when the Spirit came at Pentecost, he didn't just fall on a select few elite spiritual people or even just the 12 apostles. No, Luke tells us in Chapter 1, verse 15, that there were no fewer than 120 believers gathered in the house. And the Spirit made sure to personally fall upon each one of them individually. What Pentecost means is that as God's new people by the Spirit, each of us is his dwelling place. And all of us together are his dwelling place. Through the Spirit now dwelling in our hearts by faith, you and I, have full access to God, each of us, without distinction or hierarchy. What a glorious vision for a community. Yet this is exactly what the Apostle Luke is relaying to us happened on that day. It's the democratization of the Spirit. But secondly, the declassification of community. The declassification of community. That's verses 5 to 8. Now, Luke mentions how, as it was the day of Pentecost, there was a multitude of devout Jews who were on pilgrimage in Jerusalem from the surrounding regions. And he uses several words to underscore their, their utter amazement, their befuddlement at what they're witnessing and what they're hearing, these disciples speaking in their native tongues. However, it's their questions in verses 7 and 8 that are most revealing. And there are three reasons why, and I'm getting this from commentator R.T. France. He points these things out. The first is simply that Galileans of the time are believed to have spoken with a distinct kind of accent. Specifically, they would omit laryngeals or gutturals and aspirates. And those are linguistic terms for the kinds of sounds that uh, you can phonetically make. And so, for instance, I'll give you an example. If I were to uh, have a Galilean of the time pronounce the word gap, it might sound more like ap, 
And so you can imagine for other dialects and languages in the Mediterranean basin, there were plenty of languages that would sound different when a Galilean spoke it. But secondly, Galileans had the reputation of being kind of parochial. They weren't known as cosmopolitan people. And by being parochial, perhaps they're not so unlike us Americans. Uh, maybe you've heard the joke among certain Europeans. Uh, if you know three languages, you're trilingual. If you know two languages, you're bilingual. If you know one language, you're American. It was similar to the Galileans. They were known as a more parochial, parochial local group of people. But related to that, thirdly, Galileans were stereotyped as intellectually, socially, culturally, and religiously inferior to their southern countrymen. All that to say, by choosing Galileans of all people to receive the Spirit at Pentecost, it's clear that God's design for his new people has no respect to class. In fact, it would even seem the Spirit specifically targeted the Galileans for their marginal social status in order to make the point. We see this declassification of community. Again, another way in which this new people that God is forming at Pentecost is radically different from anything the world could create or offer. But then thirdly, the diversification of the kingdom. That's the third six-syllable word. The diversification of the kingdom. We see that in verses 9 to 11. Now, as we read these verses earlier, if you're like me, it might have struck you as somewhat odd that Luke would include this list here. And it's not only because of its lengthiness or how hard to pronounce these names are, but it's also, if you notice, how random it seems. Geographically, the list covers many of the surrounding regions in the Mediterranean to which Jewish communities had come to be dispersed over time. It's called the dispersion. From east of the Euphrates River to Asia Minor to North Africa, even to the European continent. But this list is by no means exhaustive. And it also contains designations like Asia, and Arabians, which don't necessarily fall under the same geopolitical categories as the other names. So what's going on here? We need to ask again, what does this mean? I believe the answer lies in verse 5. Did you catch the way that Luke sums up his list here? It's the phrase, every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven. And obviously this list isn't every nation under heaven, so what does he mean by that? Well, do you recall when we last saw every nation under heaven gathered together like this? In Genesis chapter 11, it was the table of the nations who conspired together against God to make a name for themselves by constructing the Tower of Babel, to which God responded by confusing their tongues and dispersing them across the earth. He thwarted their efforts. And what Luke is showing us, friends, is that Pentecost is nothing less than God the Spirit undoing the curse of Babel. Yet the way he does so isn't by, he doesn't do it by steamrolling over the diversity of human cultures and languages. No. How beautiful it is that he does it by opening the way of salvation to all cultures through his Spirit, speaking their own languages to reach them. 
Now, what does this mean? Well, for one thing, it means that the gospel of the resurrected Christ alone is the only path to true and lasting unity. Think about other systems of belief like Islam and the Quran, which by their own doctrine claims that to truly have the word of God, you need to read it in Arabic. And so it demands conformity to one local culture in order to adopt its beliefs. Or even non-religious systems like secularism, which hold to a rigorous anti-supernaturalism, which is historically very local to Northern Europe. Again, it requires conformity to a particular cultural moment in order to lay hold of its beliefs. The gospel alone at Pentecost shows us that God is no respecter of people groups and geopolitical divisions. You don't have to become any ethnicity. You don't have to gain any national status in order to become a part of this new people. But secondly, what it also means is that Pentecost allows no room for any form of Christian nationalism, American or otherwise. Think about this. If at the very inauguration of the new people of God, all known people groups were equal recipients of the gospel, then to conflate any geopolitical, social, cultural, ethnic, or racial identity marker with God's new people would in fact be a return to Babel. It would be undoing God's undoing of the curse. Friends, God gives us at Pentecost his powerful presence, which creates for himself a new people. But then lastly, we see a better word, and that's in verses 11 to 13. There's one other layer to Pentecost. I think we need to peel back before we close. On the one hand, the celebration of Pentecost does trace back to the Feast of Weeks. But there was actually another event that Pentecost commemorated as well. Approximately seven weeks after the first Passover was when the Israelites received the law through Moses at Mount Sinai. And like the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, that first Pentecost at Sinai was a day filled with mighty winds and fire from heaven. Yet the similarities end there. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 21, it speaks to those of us on this side of Pentecost. Listen to what the author says. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the, he the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Could there be any starker contrast to the disciples' experience of the Spirit? And do you know why? It's because the word that came from heaven at Sinai, what kind of word was it but the law? In other words, the word that God gave his people at Sinai is this you must do. It was about the works that we do. But there's a better word that God had for us at Pentecost. 
Luke tells us in verse 11. It's not what we must do, but notice how he puts it. It's the mighty works of God. Not our works, but his. The better word that God gives us at Pentecost is the gospel. And as Peter makes plain in his sermon afterwards, those mighty works are none other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, resurrected and ascended. And so, friends, once again, what does this mean for us? Well, it means mercy triumphs over judgment. Joy triumphs over fear. It means that when we have received this better word, a word that doesn't destroy or condemn, but empowers and enlivens, the result is joy. Joy so uninhibited that it could even be mistaken for drunkenness. And that's what we see in verse 13. There was such overflowing joy and elation that these disciples were experienced it were experiencing as they were filled with the Spirit that it was easily mistaken for the lack of inhibition one experiences when someone is drunk. And yet, it couldn't be further from being drunk, could it? The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And the only reason why he has to make that distinction is because being filled with the Spirit must make you so joyful and so spiritually drunk, so to speak, that it can easily be mistaken or substituted by physical drunkenness. But he says, don't. Instead, be filled with the true and lasting joy that the Spirit alone can give. And friends, that's what we're going to do even as we partake at the table of juice or wine and the bread that we're going to break. This too is a first fruits of what is to come. This is not the ultimate feast, but it is a feast. It's a taste. It's kind of like our cocktail hour before the grand celebration in glory. It's where we taste truly, but not fully, what Christ has won for us through his great sacrifice. And so we can lean into this moment with full faith and full confidence that we are actually being fed. And just like Pentecost, this here is a display of a powerful presence. The Spirit himself is present as we partake of these elements in faith so that while it remains bread and juice or wine, we are taking Christ into ourselves by faith through his Spirit. And we do so as a new people. As we look around and as we process to the table together, it should be easy for us to discern that we're not all alike, that there is a diversity by design in this new people of God, and that that is his beautiful wisdom and love for us to further enforce that we are not a parochial people. We are not a tribe. No, we're people from every tongue, nation, and tribe. And because we are united by one thing and one person alone, all the divisions that rend people apart in the world, they come here to die. And we can experience the true unity that Pentecost has revealed for us is ours by faith. 
But then like, uh, likewise, there's a better word here than the law. This table is a sermon, and it preaches, preaches to us the better word of the gospel. These are not your works to do. This is a sign and a seal of what Christ, the mighty works that he has done. And we simply receive it by faith. And so we can rejoice in it. We can be happy that simply eating and drinking and dining at the table is actually feeding us and nurturing us, even as we are in the midst of suffering.